Today's first scripture reading comes from Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11, and can be found on page 1178 of the Pew Bibles. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Today's second scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, and can be found on page 1178 of the Pew Bibles. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is, in, that every, in every way, whether for, from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I am to go on living in this in the body, this will be, mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. It's really good to see all of you again. Um, Before I start, I just want to update you all a little bit on the things that have been happening. So Dennis has successfully made it to the United States, so that's great. I think this Monday he's going to his son's ordination, so that's really exciting for him. Um, And he'll be there for the next few weeks um, before he gets back. The last few weeks, so the last three weeks, I have been in Turkey, in Antalya, and I've been working at a camp with James and Renata Boltima. So a lot of you know them. Um, Over the years, James has preached here many times, and this last fall, he served with us for a month straight. And so, in a sense, me going over to help was reciprocating for all the work that they've done over here. For those of you who know them, James and Renata say hello to everyone. They give their greetings. Uh, They showed me their new center that I think they talked about a lot um, that they're building, and everything is going well with that. And the camp went really well. It was for missionary kids from the Middle East and from Turkey, and there was over 200 kids there. It was great. It was very tiring, Um, so I'm, I'm very glad to be back here now, and yeah, excited to be back at IPC. Let's pray before we start. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for creating each and every one of us. Thank you for loving us um, and knowing us personally. God, help us this morning or this afternoon to just learn more about you, to grow in our relationships with you, um, and to just love you more, God. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Today, we will be starting a six-week series on the book of Philippians. We could spend many, many more weeks on it, um, but there's other parts of the Bible that Dennis and I would like to get through eventually, and so we've limited it to six weeks. Um, We will definitely not cover everything in the book. Today's passage, as you all heard, is very long, and we could easily spend six weeks just covering this passage. And so bear that in mind as we go through the passage today and in the coming weeks, we'll we'll have to skim over a few different things. As we start the series, I just want to give a short introduction to the letter to the Philippians. The church at Philippi, who Paul and Timothy are writing the letter to, was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. Acts chapter 16 tells the story of the beginning of the church in Philippi. So when you get home, I would encourage you to read Acts chapter 16 to get a little background on what's happening here. God gave Paul a vision of a man begging him to come to Macedonia and to help them. And so they immediately set out for Macedonia and then went to Philippi, which was the main city in that area. There's several stories of people coming to know Christ, 
and then presumably the church grew from there. Philippi was a pretty big city, and it had a large population of retired soldiers who Rome had placed there to try and keep the city loyal to the Roman government. There would have been worship of Roman gods, Egyptian gods, as well as worship of the Roman emperor. So at this time, often the Roman emperor was seen as the son of God, and was, um, it was demanded that they were proclaimed as the savior and lord. And so this would have been especially popular in a city like Philippi, where it was full of retired soldiers who had served the Roman state for their entire lives. So clearly, pretty quickly, the Philippian church started to have some persecution and some problems as they were proclaiming Jesus as the only Son of God and Jesus as the only Savior and Lord. Lastly, Paul writes this letter when he's imprisoned uh, for sharing the gospel, probably while he is in Rome. The church in Philippi sent a man there named Epaphroditus to come and bring aid to Paul. He probably brought some money and was providing food and drink for Paul and just whatever needs he had while he was in prison. And so Paul and Timothy sent this letter back to the church in Philippi with Epaphroditus as he goes back to the church. Now to get started, we're going to be a little bit interactive. So could I please have everyone who has glasses or contact lenses raise your hand? All right, that is a lot of us, probably over half of us. Is there anyone who knows they should have glasses but has just been too lazy to get glasses? Like me. Anyone else? Yep, back there. Great. Is there anyone with perfect vision out there? Wow. Good job, guys. Very impressive. Good work. So today I'm going to use the metaphor of lenses or of glasses to help describe the way that we as Christians should perceive and understand life. In our passage today, it's really clear that God has changed and transformed Paul's life so much that his worldview is completely other, completely different from the world around him. What Paul rejoices in, the world has sorrow in. Um, What Paul sees as strength, the world sees as weakness. Through Jesus' work in him, Paul sees the world completely differently. And he actually now sees the world correctly, as it is and as it should be. And it's as if, as Paul has put on a new pair of glasses, or if he's switched out his old lenses to change how he sees the world, he now has God-given lenses that give him the correct view of life. Paul used to have the lens or, or the glasses, the view of the Pharisees, what they defined success and what they defined goodness as. But now he is trying to see life through the lens of Christ. He now sees glorifying God and loving God as success. He sees loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, strength, and loving his neighbor as himself as success. And I believe that, like Paul, we as Christians are called to change out our lenses as well, to put on corrective glasses As we live our lives, we'll either see life from the perspective of the world, or we'll see it from a godly perspective. We'll filter success and goodness either through the lenses of the world or through a godly lens. We'll always have the choice, no matter what we're going through. And so as we work through the passage today, we'll learn more about what a worldview surrendered to God looks like. On that note, let's get into the passage. For the sake of time, sadly, we're going to skim over the introduction, 
Paul starts the letter with a very heartfelt introduction and tells the church he prays with joy about them because of their faithfulness to Christ. He tells them he really cares for them and he longs for them. And this takes us to verse 9, where he tells them his prayer for them. He says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This short prayer has a lot going on in it, and it was a bit confusing for me personally, so we're going to unpack it a little bit. Firstly, Paul seems to be saying that what is best, the best things to do, or the best ways to act, are the truly loving things. Again, he says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best. The loving thing to do, or to say, or to think, is the best thing, in any situation. As Christians, we know that we have a different definition of love from the world. We know our definition of love is based on Christ, who laid down his life for us, who humbled himself, who made himself a servant, who forgives unconditionally. And loving for us is to act like that, and it's to follow God's commands, and it's to become a servant to God and to others. So we know now that the loving thing to do is the best thing to do, but the problem is we don't always know what the loving thing to do is, if that makes sense. Loving isn't always very simple. And so Paul's prayer is not only for the Philippians to do the loving thing, it is for their love to grow in a way that they understand what the truly right thing is, what the truly loving thing to do is. Again, one last time, he says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you can discern what is best. Our love growing in knowledge and insight is God teaching us what's truly loving, and how to live and act in truly loving ways. And so here we can make a distinction. From this passage, we learn that if our love grows in knowledge and in insight, this can lead to what is best. Paul doesn't just say, if we grow in knowledge and insight, that we'll do what is best. He says, if our love grows in this way. And so here again, we see Paul with those Christ-centered glasses on. The world Paul came from highly valued knowledge, just as our world does. And knowledge is a very good thing. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But knowledge without love does not lead to the right path or to the right decision. Before knowing Christ, Paul was on track to be a famous Pharisee. The Pharisees were obsessed with knowledge, rules, status, and Paul was definitely no different. But as we know, Jesus actually condemned the Pharisees for forgetting to love God and forgetting to love others. They forgot the important things of the law as loving God and, and forgiving, being merciful, being faithful to others. Even though the Pharisees had some knowledge and some knowledge of how to live life, how to love God, Jesus calls them blind guides. The Pharisees based their decisions on knowledge and insight, not on loving God and loving others. And so here we see that God has transformed Paul's worldview. God has switched out Paul's 
lenses. Right decisions are made in love for God and for others. And our love growing in knowledge and in insight is God teaching us through prayer, through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, how to better love him and how to better love others. I think a very rough metaphor for this that has helped me wrap my mind around it a little bit is looking at human inventions. We as humans use knowledge to create new things, right? Humans have used knowledge in loving and caring ways to create some great things in our world. We've created medicines, wheelchairs, really comfortable beds, glasses even, right? Um, Crops that can feed more people. These things are good. But humans have also used knowledge without love and without care to create things that are horrors. We've invented guns and, and military weapons and bombs to kill each other faster. We've invented ways to kill children in the womb. And we've created plastics that have polluted the entire planet. Without love, knowledge has led to horrific things and horrific decisions in the world. And so in that similar vein, in our lives, love that has knowledge and insight will lead to the best decisions, while while insight without love will not lead us down the right way. And so last thing in this verse Not only does loving and our love growing in knowledge and insight allow us to make right decisions, but the verse says, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As God grows us in love, he will sanctify us. He will help us to become more like him. And he's going to bring good fruits into our lives. And all of this glorifies God. Living in love, making decisions in love, brings praise to our God. And so to summarize this very short passage, Paul filters life through the lens of Christ. Love for God and others brings about right decisions, right living. Love brings sanctification, fruit, and glory to God. Now we'll move on to verse 12, where Paul begins talking about being in prison. I really wonder what the Philippians were expecting from this letter from Paul. Maybe they were expecting him to ask for more help, or for prayers, or for him to tell them the pain and the struggles of of being in prison for several years. If you think about the church in Philippi, they're probably on the edge of their seats as they listen to the reader. They know their friend and their church founder is in prison, and they they care about him a lot. And, And Paul is pretty surprising. Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So again, Paul has those glasses on. He doesn't complain. He actually sees being in prison as a victory for God. He sees God working, um, Jesus being glorified. He sees the guards and those around him getting to learn about Jesus. He sees his Christian brothers and sisters being more confident in their faith. 
without viewing life through the lens of Christ, Paul actually just seems insane. His life makes no sense at all. But again, God has transformed Paul's mind and his life. Reading this is honestly pretty convicting for me and just fully reminded me of how poorly of a job I do of seeing things through the lens of Christ. So often, I view life and success through a selfish and a worldly lens. Reading this this week reminded me of a situation actually just last week. So last Wednesday, when I was at at the camp in Turkey, I started to feel very demotivated. We worked really long hours every day, and it had been about 10 days in a row at this point. I was pretty tired spiritually, physically, emotionally, and socially. I missed my wife, and honestly, I was just feeling bad for myself. I was, I was pouting like a child. <laughs> honestly, honestly. I wasn't thinking about glorifying God or about helping the students to grow in their faith. I wasn't rejoicing about all the beautiful things that God had been doing through the camp. I was just thinking about how miserable I felt. And that day, my roommate, he was great, his name was Keith, he shared with me that he'd been struggling with the same thing as well, that he was exhausted, trying to find motivation. But then he said, as he went through the day, God shifted his perspective. God changed his heart, changed his mind, and and he helped him realize that what he was doing was for God, to love God, and to love the students. And after that, he was able to have joy the next few days. God refreshed him and gave him strength. Nevertheless, I'll be very honest, after he told me this, I wanted to have that perspective, but I really still struggled to view things through that lens. I still struggled to not just feel bad for myself, to not be in a bad mood, to rejoice in what God was doing. And comparing my attitude during this short camp to Paul's attitude in prison is pretty embarrassing, right? It's very embarrassing. Clearly, Paul was experiencing persecution, was actually having a difficult time in life, and Paul rejoiced in what God was doing. God was really working at the camp I was at, but I found it so hard to rejoice in that because I was busy looking at myself and busy looking through that worldly lens. And I wanted to share this just to illustrate that it's not always easy to glorify God in our lives. It's not always easy to put God first. It's not always easy to put those lenses on and to keep those lenses on, seeing the world through Christ's lens. And we really, all of us, we really need God's help and mercy to see things in the world correctly. We need to constantly be coming back to God over and over for his strength, his perseverance, and to give us that correct view of life. So now we'll move on, and the next verses we'll move through pretty quickly, so just try to follow along if you can. In verses 15 through 17, Paul says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Paul talks about those preaching about Christ, 
Some are preaching out of love for God, and some are preaching out of selfishness and trying to stir up problems for Paul while he's in prison. But Paul follows this uh, by saying in verse 18, But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Again, again and again, we see that, we see those lenses. We see Paul's worldview. There's people causing trouble for him, probably lying about him. But in the, in the end, he does not care. Jesus is being preached. And Paul's own reputation is much less important to himself than God being glorified. That's beautiful. Paul goes on and he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul shares his belief and hope in God that he will be released from prison and that he will be restored to his normal church ministry. And now we'll focus on these next few verses a little bit more. In the coming verses, we'll see the full fruition of God's work in Paul, of God transforming Paul's worldview. Paul says in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Shame for Paul is that Jesus is not exalted in his life. And success for Paul is that Christ is exalted in his body or in his life. So shame is not being in prison as he is for several years. Shame is not being ridiculed, lied about, slandered by others, causing trouble for him. Shame is not being poor and helpless and needing Epaphroditus to come and literally take care of his every need. Shame is not even death. With the lenses of the world, these are shameful things. From the lenses of the world, Paul is a complete failure. But with the lens of Christ, shame is something completely different. With the lens of Christ, shame is actually living for yourself. It's not exalting God with your life. And from the lens of Christ, success is the opposite of that. It's exalting God with your body and with your life. And so Paul sees being in prison as a success for God. Paul sees uh, being, being lied about and slandered about, but Christ being preached as a success. And here Paul takes it even one step further, saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Even death in the end will be a success. It will be a gain. Death by execution for Christ would not be shameful, but it would be a victory. And Paul furthers this thought even more, saying, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Living is Christ, dying is gain. Successful living is laboring for God's kingdom in whatever context you're living in right now in the moment. And living for God may lead you to crazy places and situations like it did for Paul. It probably will at times lead you to temporary pain, temporary difficulty. 
but is going to lead to joy, both now and into eternity. In these first 26 verses that Paul writes from prison, he mentions his joy and his rejoicing four times. We will have joy in Christ in this life, joy that nothing else can bring. And we will also have joy in Jesus into eternity. Dying as a Christian is in the end game. Dying means being with Christ, being in our perfect, loving, infinite God's presence for eternity. Speaking of our eternity with God, Revelation 21 says, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The last thing we learn is that the worldview, or those lenses, those glasses we wear as Christians, that they're not short-sighted. Like Paul, we must really believe and internalize that we have eternity with God. Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth and took our sins upon himself, and he resurrected, and he offers eternity with him to whoever receives him. Our reality as Christians is that we will have a perfect eternity with God. Whatever difficulties we've had yesterday or today or tomorrow, this truth does not change and we must hold on to it. We must have hope in this truth. And so these lenses that God gives us as Christians are not short-sighted, but they allow us to see far, far into the distance, into the hope that we have in eternity. And this will completely change how we live our lives today and how we see our struggles and our labor for Christ. As we finish up today and as you go home, I want you all to reflect on your own worldview. So whether that's now or when you get home, take a little bit of time to just think about the lenses with which you see the world. Do you live with a lens that glorifying and loving God is success? Do you see loving actions as being the best actions? Is shame for you looking bad in front of others, or is it not exalting God with your life? And lastly, with the lens with which you view life, is it farsighted? Do you see eternity? Do you live in a way that reflects the knowledge that you are going to be with God in eternity? Clearly, none of us are perfect, not even Paul at all. And all of us struggle to view life correctly. But let us be praying as a church that God will transform us. Let us be praying that God transforms our minds and our hearts and that he aligns ourselves with his desires. Let's now bow our heads and pray as Paul did for the church in Philippi. Jesus Christ, let our love at IPC abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. God, change our worldviews, and let us see the world as you do.
Give us new lenses to see how to love you with our lives. For your glory, amen.